Well, good morning. My name's Taylor Reevely. It's good to be with you in person. I have a question. I want to begin with a poll this morning, a simple poll. How many of you planted a garden this spring? Wonderful. Several of you. Should there be a crisis, we'll have maybe enough food amongst us all to pull together. The second question is like it, but it's different. How many of you are gardeners? That number is smaller than the first number. Because you see there's a difference between planting a garden and being a gardener. Anyone can plant a garden. But there's no way that a gardener is not going to plant a garden. Okay, the, second, the, the third poll question is like it. Uh, how many of you put any letters on a piece of paper in 2021? Good. Print isn't dead. That's great. Cursive or... Okay, no, we won't go into that. The second question is like it. How many of you then are writers? Far less of you. Of course, anyone can put pen to paper and write some scribbles on a page and call it writing, the activity of writing. But if you are a writer, there is no way you can't write. You can't not write. In fact, usually if you're writing and you've got a project, you've got a page minimum per day to write. There is a difference between being and doing. There's a difference between your identity and your activity. And this is precisely what the gospel does. It primarily transforms our being, and as a result, it transforms our doing. Believing the gospel changes your identity. It changes who you are. And then, and only then, does it change your activity? And this is in itself good news. That when you come to Christ, he doesn't show you this list of all the things you must now get to work doing. Instead, he says, I can work with that. And renews your identity. And out of that overflow, changes the way you live. And this is why Christians need the gospel every day. Yes, the world needs the gospel, our friends need the gospel, but why we need the gospel every day. There are two dangers if Christians think that they can outgrow or outmature their need for the gospel again. The first is that Christians can claim to be Christians without doing anything Christian. That's a problem. The second is that people can do all sorts of Christian-y things without being Christian. In both cases, there is a disconnect between our identity and activity, our being and our doing. This morning, the connection between being and doing couldn't be any clearer. And I, I promise you that our tendency will be to hear this message 
and start thinking of all the things that we need to improve or start doing when we get home. It's somehow built into us. But this morning, may your identity in Christ be affirmed unequivocally. And only then may you see how that identity manifests itself and informs the activity of someone who is in Christ. So would you please turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It's about 90% of the way through the Bible toward the end. And 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is quite clear that the gospel produces new people with a new purpose. The gospel transforms our being and consequently transforms our doing. Look with me at 2 Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The gospel produces a new people. It changes them from the inside out. And he begins in verse 14 by saying, the love of Christ controls us. The identity controls the activity. And it needs to be stated again. It can't be overstated, and it can't be stated frequently enough. You are loved by God. Last week you came to church and Eric preached a whole sermon about that. And I can't say it enough. You are loved by God. Now the statement that the love of Christ controls us is the conclusion of what he writes next. So continue reading with me. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Now the narrative is significant here. God created humans to live with him in a perfect intimate relationship with him, secure, at peace. Our first parents rejected God, believing a lie and brought sin and death, and in fact the words became true, they surely died. Now the remainder of the Old Testament, the largest portion here of your Bible, is a story about how people continually run away from God, not toward Him, and a story of a God who pursues them with promise after promise of salvation. And then you turn the page from the Old Testament to the New Testament, and you read a story of Jesus, the son of Adam 
the son of Abraham, the son of David. He lived the life that we could not live. He died the death that we deserved to die, and he rose again, offering new life to all who would believe him. The first Adam sinned, and all of his descendants inherit the sin nature and the consequences of sin. The second Adam, Christ died, and all of his followers inherit life. Why should God love you? Why would God pursue you to intervene, to rescue you from destruction? Because you're awesome? Because you're lovely? Beautiful? Great potential? The, The answer to that question is tricky. And it's hard. But John 3.16 makes it clear nonetheless that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. It was the uncaused love of God the Father for you that caused him to send his son for you. And it is the undying love of your Savior, Jesus, that led him to the cross to die for you. This act of love changes everything, yes, for us and for the world. When he says, one has died for all, therefore all have died, I think he's speaking of all people. The offer is extended to all people. And we'll see in a moment why this matters The same offer extended to you is offered to your friends and to the world. And it says that he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Don't speed read this section. The Bible's not a book to speed read anyways, but don't speed read here. Because we might get to the point where you could say, yes, Jesus has died for you. But the million dollar question he raises here is, did Jesus rise for you? No longer is being, is, are the Christians included in this all the people that Christ died for merely. A new category has been introduced, the living ones. There's a transition that has happened. Faith in Jesus responding to the gospel means that you benefit from Christ's death and his resurrection. Yes, all have died, but you, the living ones now, live for something more, for something different. The gospel creates a new people. Notice the intended shift, the purpose statement that takes place as a result of this identity transformation. In order that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him. Now this is a rebuttal of the futility of our modern narrative, which says that you are the source of your own truth, you are the source of your purpose, you are the source and the captain of your own ship. The world is what you make of it. 
Now, the conclusion of that narrative, it, it masquerades as hope. It masquerades as something meaningful when in fact it is the source of despair because your purpose can only be as big as you could conceive of it. And when you die, your purpose dies with it. And so we usually soften the narrative and we add a, we change the purpose. We don't want to live for ourselves. It kind of sounds selfish. We want to live for others. It's a noble purpose. It's just unfortunate that the people that you live for, the purpose of your life, are the ones that hurt you the most. It's just unfortunate to give your life for a cause for others only to die and have your philanthropic cause replaced by someone else's new cause. Neither of these purposes are strong enough to give your life away for. And he offers something new here. Living for Christ, the one who died and rose, underwrites your individual value. It defines what it means to live for others. And the purpose of your life is not derailed by death. In the poetic words of C.T. Studd, he says, Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ shall last. So now with the premise understood, we can return to the conclusion at the beginning of verse 14. The love of Christ controls us. You hear the word control and only negative thoughts come into mind. But literally, the word is hold together. The love of Christ holds us together. Yes, it keeps us from doing what we should not do, but it shows us and enables us what we should do. It restrains us and it constrains us or compels us. The picture is more like the banks of a river that hold the river in place, keeping it where it should go. Or like the lanes on the road that you took to drive here that kept you in the right place in order to get where you were going. It's so easy to be controlled by something else. It's easy to say the love of Christ controls us. It's just as easy to be controlled by anything but the love of Christ. To be controlled by a peculiar doctrine or dogma, to be controlled by your schedule, your finances, your family, to be controlled by a political alliance. We are so easily tempted to be controlled by something else because we are so easy to forget that we are loved by Because it is so easy to move on to more complicated things instead of anchoring and staying firmly rooted in the gospel. This 
Paul continues, he now illustrates what it looks like when the love of Christ controls us. He notes one specific shift that takes place. Look with me at verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. When you're controlled by the love of Christ, when that identity has become yours, you now start to see people the way that God sees people. Immediately, in fact. Because the love of Christ led him to die on behalf of all people, regardless of exterior, um, visible indicators, that same love now controls us. I want you to look around the room. Look at the people in this room. What do you see? Uh, Arguably, you see a mask. It's like the first thing you see when you look at a person anymore. Maybe you see a nicer shirt than the one that you're wearing, a better haircut. Maybe you see gender or skin color. Maybe you see a spokesperson for a political party or the quintessence of a generational caricature. No longer. If you have been loved by Christ and the love of Christ controls you as it is intended to, you no longer regard anyone according to the flesh. And to illustrate this, he uses Christ as an example. He says, we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. How would one one regard Christ according to the flesh? Well, it's not too hard. He's a carpenter's son, donkey riding, doctor preacher, who got in the wrong crowd, And they killed him. Good man, good teacher. In fact, 52% of Americans would believe that and agree with you that Jesus is just a good teacher. He's not God. And regard him according to the flesh. Paul says, we do this no longer. Why is that? Because God has opened our eyes by faith to see him for who he really is. To recognize him as the long-awaited Messiah, the Son of God, the Son of Man, who died the death in our place that we deserve to die and rose again to life. Yes, he's a good teacher, but he's much, much more than that. And this new person that God is creating starts to see people, namely Christ, as God sees them. And what Paul's illustrating here with this example is that the same transformation has occurred in us in the way that we view all people. Yes, they are black or white. Yes, they are male or female. Yes, they are Democrat or Republican. But they are much, much more than that. 
So here's what I want you to do with that literal mask. Every time you see it, remind yourself that it is just a mask and that there is a real person behind that mask. Remind yourself that you are more than a body with a mask. You are made in the image of God, loved eternally and infinitely by God who died for you. You're a soul in need of reconciliation with the creator of the universe. And the offer has been made to you and to all. This is how God sees people. And this is a transformation that has taken place in us. Now, as further evidence of that reality, look at verse 17, which is familiar to many of you. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So he's just going to use us as an, our own experience as an illustration. This is true of you, is what he's saying. And more than that, what is true of you now defines the way that you interact with others. Now just listen to this description of your new identity. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. When you were in Adam, you were dead. And you've been transferred. You're in Christ and alive. Now when he speaks of a new creation, I believe he's speaking more than simply a new creature. Instead, he's referring to all that is summed up in the kingdom hope of a new creation. It's not merely that your old hurts, habits, and hang-ups have been replaced with a better, a better answer. It's more that you were once an enemy of God, and that has died. And now you are a citizen of heaven, adopted into God's family, aligned with his purpose. You've been made alive. We long for revelation, the book of Revelation, to come. When God is going to make all things new, there will be no pain, no tears, no crying, no mourning. The old things have passed away. Behold, the new has come. Very familiar language. And what Paul's indicating is that we have become a people that are being re made ready for that day. You're a new creation for the new creation and begins today. As such, because this identity has changed, the purpose has also changed. The activity also changes. It's no longer, you no longer live to yourself, you live for Christ. It's no longer your comfort that controls you, the love of Christ controls you. You belong to a new kingdom and you follow a new king. And that fundamental transformation that has taken place in you, God has made available to all. And so we recognize and view people, all people, as God views them. So in light of this identity transformation that has taken place, a new creation, 
Paul now turns to explain further what this new purpose looks like. He's made a compelling argument that the gospel creates a new people, and now the gospel also creates a new purpose. Look with me at verse 18. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The gospel has created a new people. The gospel produces a new purpose. The first here is that we are now reconciled reconcilers in the business of reconciliation. Consider how precious this is in verse 18. All of this is from God. All of it. This is the crux of being versus doing. We showed up in the conversation and brought nothing to the table, and God has done it. It is finished, it is done. So what follows here is not simply now this, now the laundry list shows up, the application appendix to the good news and all the things you need to start doing. What follows is simply this new identity that God has brought in you is now manifesting itself. You can't help it. Paul explains further in verse 19, that is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. One commentator suggests there are four essential ingredients of what it means to be a reconciled reconciler. The first is that God is both the initiator and the goal of reconciliation. In in an extraordinary act of divine initiative, God accomplishes for us what we were, one, unwilling, and two, unable to do for ourselves. And it's different than our normal human conflict resolution plan. In normal human conflict resolution, to be reconciled means that the offended party has removed the grounds for being offended, taken away my feelings about your offense. In the terms that Paul uses here, what God has done is he has not merely removed the grounds for being offended, he has taken the offense and removed it altogether. He's dealt with it. You can now be reconciled to God because He has done it. He is the start of this process and He is the end. He is the goal. There is nothing else.
The second ingredient is that Christ is God's agent in reconciliation. As Tim read a moment ago, Colossians 1.20 highlights that the incarnate creator is the one whose death brings reconciliation. Acts 4.12 just makes it clear there's no one else. No one else can do this. And Ephesians 2.16 helps us see that God reconciled us, that Christ reconciled us to God through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Thus, there is no reconciliation without a cross. There is no reconciliation without Christ. And now you've been entrusted with this message. What is this message about? It is about Christ and the cross. Jump ahead with me and look at verses, uh, the end of verse 20 and verse 21. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The call is to anyone within earshot, be reconciled to God. And the good news of the call is that Christ has been treated as our sin deserved so that we can be treated as Christ's perfection deserves. That seems to be a good news. So our message is only Christ and Him crucified. The third ingredient is that human beings and the whole created universe are the objects and principal beneficiaries of God's reconciling action. We benefit. Remember who you were? Yeah, we who once were God's enemies benefit. Those people out there that you think look like God's enemies benefit. And because we don't view people according to the flesh any longer, reconciled reconcilers see them too as objects and beneficiaries of God's reconciling action. And the fourth ingredient is that reconciliation is an accomplished fact on God's side, yet it must be embraced on the human side. And one sense that the deed has been done. The work has been finished. But on the other hand, it must be received through faith. Notice how these two effects of reconciliation are linked in verse 19. God was reconciling, it says, not counting and entrusting. God was reconciling, he was not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to them the ministry of reconciliation. Now, the issue of sin, the not counting their trespass against them, has been dealt one time for all. You must decide that Jesus will be your Savior. But the entrusting the message of reconciliation is not a one-time decision. It is a lifetime responding to God's initiative. 
Your one-time identity transformation now, become, now means that you have an ongoing activity that you are called to. There's no option. You want to have your sins not credited against you? That sounds good. I'll take it. Get out of hell free? I'll take it. And God says, I've already, I've already done all this. I'm, I will take your sin and remove it from you. And I will give you a ministry of reconciliation. You might say, I don't, I just want, I just want to have sins forgiven. That's all. He says, that's not, that's not the intended goal of being reconciled to God. So yes, your identity has changed from enemy of God to reconciled to God. And that identity change has transformed your purpose from live for yourself to now reconciled, reconciler with God. Now the, he continues this to explain this new purpose. Look with me at verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We are ambassadors. Ambassadors for Christ. There are at least four implications of what this means to be an ambassador. The first is that we leave our homeland. Ambassadors don't work in the country of their residence or of their nationality. They are in another land. It implies that you go. It's as though Paul is picking up on the final marching orders of Jesus. All authority has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. The second is that our citizenship is not of the country that we live in. We talked extensively about this in our study of 1 Peter a year ago. And there's a great podcast out right now called Sitting on a Hill, um, hosted by Eric and my dad, that talks about what it means to live as a citizen of heaven in the country of America. But the reality of being an ambassador means that they have all the rights and privileges of their home country and merely live and merely work for their king in a foreign country. The third identifier of an ambassador is that our assignment is entrusted to us by our king. What controls us? The love of Christ controls us. Who gave us our position? All of this is from God. What is our message? Be reconciled to God. Simplify the message. Simplify your life. If you're all about Jesus, then be only all about Jesus. Calling people to be reconciled to God and your, your pet issue or your pet cause messes up the message of the king. Our assignment's entrusted to us by Jesus. And finally, our assignment is temporary, but the kingdom is eternal. When an ambassador's assignment ends, the country that sent him didn't just end. No, the country continues with or without him. And just as an ambassador, you're a part of something much bigger than yourself. 
Your purpose as an ambassador is to partner and participate with God in His work that will reach its culmination in the new creation. Now I want you to think closely here for a minute. If it is true that you're an ambassador and you live in an embassy, in your real life, what is that embassy? To reinterpret that question is, where do I live? What is your place of residence? Consider that place as an embassy of the king. Consider your role as an ambassador of the king. Now, if you were to be controlled by the love of Christ, seeing people as God sees them, calling all to be reconciled to God, how would that change the way that you live and work in that space as an ambassador of the king? Or put another way, that sounds like it's just, if you're doing all the right things, how would you live? The real question is, if you're in Christ, how would you live in that house with that assignment? Would you meet your neighbors? Would you think differently about the threshold of your house and life on the front porch? Would you make time in your schedule and in this place for kingdom work? The list goes on and on. I can't fill in the blanks for you, and that's also the point here. You are in Christ, and you cannot live another way. You cannot separate the activity of home life from your identity of in Christ. And Paul continues, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. What's happened with this new identity, what's happened with this new purpose is our purpose equals God's purpose. Beautiful thing happens here for new creations who have now aligned themselves with the king of the universe who... The ministry of reconciliation is precisely what God has been doing all along. And in an extraordinary gift of grace has brought us into it as allies, not enemies. Now this is not just something disconnected from our identity. When we talk about engaging those disconnected from God so they enlighten Him through Jesus, this is not something that's just tacked on to your life. Our purpose is precisely informed by our identity. We have been reconciled to God in order to reconcile others with God. Just as the gardener can't not garden, and the writer can't not write, so the one who has been reconciled to God can't not partner with him in reconciliation. I want to turn the page here as we close to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. The first two verses illustrate the stakes for us, where he writes, working together with him then. Which first, that's just a beautiful phrase that the apostle is saying, I'm a co-laborer with God. That's pretty cool. Anyways, working together with him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. 
Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Do not receive the grace of God in vain. Which is terrifying because it means that it is possible to receive the grace of God in vain. If you have heard my voice today, and God has said, I've done it all. I've died for you. I want, to, I want to be risen for you. Be reconciled to me. Today is the day of salvation, he says. And to reject that call to be reconciled to God is to receive the grace, the invitation of God, in vain. So let today be a favorable time a time that God has invited, the time of salvation. But also, if now we say, I like being reconciled to God, but I don't really want to be a reconciled reconciler of others, then the grace of God toward us has been in vain. The grace of God was never meant to terminate on you. So participate with him in his work. Now, we wrap up today 50 days of delighting in Jesus together. And all along the way, it has been grace of God to you, grace of God to you, and a call to live in response to that grace. And just so for the record, we're not stopping preaching the gospel because we're done with 50 days delighting in Jesus. We, we continue next week in Psalm 77 is rich and dripping with good news for you, so come back. But you'll be reminded, hopefully, each week we presented gospel fruit, and we even called it gospel fruit. The gospel produces, and there were seven things, the gospel produces reconciliation with God. The gospel produces rest, victory, Humility, love, and purpose. All of this is gospel fruit. Ray Ortland says time and time again, gospel doctrine produces gospel culture. These are gospel fruits. The gospel produces these things, but they are not the gospel itself. Do not be confused on the idea of your being and your doing. You are in Christ. And being in Christ produces these things in your life. Now, I want to just illustrate, even by just taking that list of the things the gospel produces. In week one of this series, we began by preaching that believing the gospel produces reconciliation with God. From Colossians 1. And now today, we conclude with a fully formed picture, a complete picture that the people who are reconciled to God, the gospel produces those people, are also reconcilers with God. May this be a lesson in itself, that the first, you must first be reconciled to God. Your identity changed in order to be a reconciler with God. Your activity changed. And if you are reconciled to God, you necessarily must be a reconciler. You can't not 
the activity that accompanies this way of living then, as we engage those disconnected from God, is not some discombobulated encumbrance, a burden that has nothing to do with who we are. No, it becomes the life-giving purpose of your new identity. So now, as the church, embracing its identity, as ones who are loved extravagantly by God in the gospel, may our gospel identity produce gospel fruit, yes, in our church, and yes, in the world. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we rejoice this morning that you have reconciled us to yourself, that you have accomplished all that was necessary that we might be made right and at peace with you. And we count it a privilege to partner with you in the same work that you have been doing in our life, in the lives of others. Holy Spirit, would you empower your church? Would you produce gospel fruit in our lives? We pray this for the sake of our church and for the sake of of all that Christ died for. In Jesus' name, amen.